Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. You know, Melissa both served President Bush and President uh, Obama um, in the cyberspace area. She spearheaded the cyber policy review for President Obama, and she led the comprehensive national cybersecurity initiative for President Bush. She currently runs a company which is called Hathaway Global Strategies. And you can imagine with that background what Hathaway Global Strategies does. But it's, and she's also a member of our Track 2 Dialogue on Digital Economy, which is run by former Director of National Intelligence, Denny Blair, and former uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, Mike Chertoff. And she has been a stalwart in in that dialogue. And Gary is the founding and managing partner of Qiming Venture Partners, which has been around now for 13, 14 years, Gary? 15 years, yeah. 15 years. It's It's got 70 staff in the U.S. and China, invests in technology and healthcare. It's now got over $5 billion in assets under management and has been one of the incredibly great investors um, in kind of the, the U.S.-China um, area. He's invested in Xiaomi, uh, Meituan Dianping, uh, Bike Dance, as we're going about to talk about, um, and a bunch of other uh, companies. So he's done reasonably well. And because he's done reasonably well, he's actually been a great supporter of the, uh, of the National Committee. We have, with the Rhodium Group, um, a project which collects data on two-way investment and two-way venture capital investment. And Gary has been an enormous supporter of that, and I thank you for that. But we're going to kick it off with Melissa, who's kind of going to talk about where this started, where we are, give us the basis of for what is going on, tell us what's going on, and then go to Gary to talk about the, the business implications, the implications for for venture capital flows, the, the, the implications for kind of technology flows. We'll talk about then the implications for US-China relations. Um, I'll ask some questions and then we've already got a couple of dozen questions from the audience and I expect others to roll in. But thank you all for joining us on short notice. I thank the panelists from joining, for joining us on short notice and thank the audience for responding so overwhelmingly to this program. We've got a, uh, an enormous audience, but Melissa, let me turn it over to you uh, to kick this off. Great, well, good afternoon, good morning, good evening for all, anybody who's calling in from all the different time zones around the world. Um, and uh, I, I was you know, very surprised last week with uh, the executive orders, but I wanted to, I think it's important to put them in a context of how they map back or where their provenance is coming from. And the provenance really is coming from the executive order 13873 that was released last May, on May 15th, on securing the information and communications technologies and services securing that supply chain as it is in the United States. For the last decade or more, at least even when I was in the government, there was a fair amount of concern about the vulnerabilities of the key technologies that are in the backbone of our telecommunications networks 
in, um, and then now more increasingly in all of the other broader ICT networks, infrastructures, data centers, and, and providers. And within that executive order, the president used um, the Emergency Economic Powers Act and the National Emergencies Act to empower the Secretary of Commerce to be able to restrict the acquisition or use of ICT or their services designed, developed, manufactured, or supplied by persons owned by, controlled by, or subject to the jurisdiction or direction of a foreign adversary. It was written really very broadly, this executive order, and it provided a framework also to prohibit US companies um, and operating within the US jurisdiction from purchasing or using the services or equipment provided by these suppliers of concern. And, um, and so when you look at the language of the executive order that the two executive orders, the twin executive orders for WeChat and, Twi and TikTok that came out last week, they're actually using very same language of the original executive order on ICT services and supply chain. But concurrently what's going on and um, is also important is two days before the executive order, uh, Secretary Pompeo went in and talked strongly or, and, and more in depth about the clean network initiative that is surrounding around 5G and has been the basis of some of the initiative around eliminating Huawei from our uh, communications infrastructure and from 5G. And within that, um, that clean network initiative, there are five main components to it that were announced last week, two days prior to this executive order. And I think these are also important uh, because it's a sign of where I think things are headed um, and that what, where we should be expecting from our companies of what we should be expecting next. So the first was, um, was looking at uh, clean carriers. Uh, within the U.S. telecommunications not, network, we do not want to have connections to providers in a specifically called out, clean network is specifically about China and those companies that have a link or potential link to the Communist Party. So the clean carrier for U.S. telecommunications is branch one of the clean network. And I would expect that you're going to see the FCC pull, Federal Communications Commission pull the licenses for China Unicom and China Telecom per the um, discussion of Team Telecom that we heard last month. So any um, telecommunications provider that is headquartered in China will likely have their licenses revoked by the FCC. The next two initiatives were really about applications. Um, applications that are untrusted applications that are being sold in our stores and untrusted applications that might be um, resident within the phones or the mobile devices that we've been issued, that they're already a pre-factory load um, application on the device. And so the first area of applications is that there's going to be a issuance, most likely from Secretary of Commerce, although it's unclear how they're going to execute that, that they would prevent the sale of or require um, Apple and Android and the other um, mobile app stores to remove a WeChat and remove um, TikTok from their stores. 
And then the secondary will be that anything that comes preloaded into your phone, uh, whether it's an Android or Samsung or pick your flavor, will um, have a review of trusted applications. So this is where the WeChat and the TikTok come in. And I'll talk to you where I think the concerns are after, in a few minutes. Then the fourth area was clean cloud. And this one I thought is going to have more profound implications for all of our businesses than any of the others because it's, it's aimed at trying to prevent um, intellectual property theft, uh, data loss, et cetera. But it specifically calls out Alibaba, uh, Baidu, and Tencent. And so whereas the application stores and the application components of the, um, of the uh, clean network initiative that Secretary Pompeo announced did not call out any specific application, but the fourth component on cloud did. It called out three companies specifically. And I work with a number of companies that already have strategic partnerships with Alibaba or Tencent or Baidu. So this is going to have profound implications, I think, for the Fortune 500. And then finally, the last component of clean network was um, clean cable. And this is protect the undersea cables from subversion. And one could say that this is uh, the Google Facebook cable that was going through the Pacific, um, through the Philippines over to Hong Kong was recently blocked. Um, and so this would be basically discussing other parts of cables and cable landings that we're trying to push forward of not allowing the interconnect with Chinese infrastructure or Chinese telecommunications carriers. So when you look at the two executive orders, um, they really map to these two components, the executive order on supply chain, ICT and supply chain, and then this clean path or the clean network initiative that is being administered by um, Secretary of State and at State Department. So you have two key components within the US um, executive branch, commerce with extreme authorities outside of the CFIUS process, Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States, and now Secretary of State implementing the Clean Network Initiative that will be executed most likely through Federal Communications Commission and NTIA. So what, what's the national security concern of, uh, and, and why are we executing these executive orders um, aside from the fact that they are headquartered um, and or have parents um, of the subsidiary or headquartered in China. Um, there seems to be a, a concern over uh, data access and access to hundreds of millions of, um, of people's personal information, habits, geolocation data. And there's a concern that you might have the ability to monitor, track, or collect more data and, and inform more things. There's a secondary concern that I don't think has been articulated well. However, I did hear one of our Department of Justice colleagues yesterday talk about it, is that there's also a concern that these apps could be used for um, content control and or censorship. Um, uh, and that there's overall a fear of, uh, of reach that goes wide and deep of Chinese government into the United States core infrastructure and personal data sets. And so those are the kind of the key areas within this. When I think about this though, um, and it's uh, highly specific to China, that we really should be having a much more transparent conversation that not just about the US and China, but about the applications broadly and how they use data. Um, 
and, and how and who owns the data, what is collected and why, where is the data processed, how is the data stored and where is it stored, how is it protected, what are the data transfer policies, how long is the data retained and why, when is the data retired, and maybe most important, maybe most important, who owns the data. And, um, and because this goes to the heart of many of our um, cross-border data flow issues that we're currently experiencing, the data privacy, data protection laws and regulations that happen all around the world, the data sovereignty issues that we're addressing all around the world, all of which have components of foreign direct investment, have a whole component on e-commerce and trade, and they all have profound implications for how we do business together and how we ensure the free flow of goods, services, data, and capital across borders. I'll stop there, Steve. That's fabulous background, fabulous. Can, can I just, let me just ask one very quick question, which I, I is only because I'm not a technologist and don't understand this. So FCC revokes Unicom China Telecom's license. Does that affect calling between the United States and China, phone calls? Is, is that still, do, don't we need to interface with some of these companies or no, not anymore? We do need to interface, but that would go through, technically your call would still go through. It's their ability to operate and provide telecommunication services here in the United States. So it's really about their physical presence here in the United States, not about the interoperability of our phone calls. However, I do believe the interoperability of our data flows are going to be affected with the clean network initiative. Um, they'll have more stringent controls, I believe, on, through the, the great firewall that's happening you know, on China and we'll have more um, controls here in the United States. I see, okay. Uh, Gary, let me turn, let me also tell our, our audience that, um, you know, don't use the raise your hand function, use the Q&A function if you have questions which you would like to ask. I can see that's already lighting up with additional questions, but let me turn it over to Gary. Thanks very much, Steve. Um, and it's a pleasure to, pleasure to join you today. Um, so I'm gonna take the perspective of, as an investor, um, you know, how we looked at this and uh, how Chiming would look at, and more importantly, how I would look at this. And the first thing to say is that the rise of an app like TikTok was inevitable. And when you look at the largest internet on the planet, which is within China, um, and you look at the amount of money that's been invested in the venture capital market there over the last 20 years, which would total hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, you look at the scale of the market, you look at the engineering talent, um, you know, generally that would be enough to create a great deal of innovation and new forms of communication and messaging. Um, China also has the added benefit of being a protected home market in which to launch a large number of services and perfect things. And I think this is, we're just starting to see the Chinese companies where their own domestic market's not enough and they wanna be global players. And so again, I think, I think this is something that it was inevitable, the fact that it's TikTok, um, Maybe unfortunate for them, Alibaba has tried to be successful in the U.S. with modest results. Tencent really doesn't have a huge amount of revenue coming from the United States outside of gaming. They have virtually nothing. You know, Baidu has failed miserably when it's on overseas as a search you know, engine because it's just inferior. In, it's just plain inferior technically to Google. Um, so talking about how TikTok came to be in this position. So first of all, you look at the ownership structure. So TikTok was formed out of the acquisition by ByteDance 
of a company called Musical.ly. And Musical.ly was this app that initially was getting relatively modest traction, good modest traction in the United States uh, for, for young adults, adolescents to lip sync to videos. And Musical.ly had a series of investors. Chi Ming was one of those uh, investors. And as part of a round of financing, they did, ByteDance made the Musical.ly acquisition. And what changed was the fact that the technology capability within ByteDance that they had perfected with their Douyin application in China, which is, a, which is very similar to TikTok, but focused on the Chinese market, they simply wound up with better algorithms in terms of being able to focus and create more stickiness or addictiveness, if you will, of those applications. And an example of the histor historical example of this in terms of something that I experienced a long time ago was Google. So Yahoo had a search engine, AltaVista had a search engine. Back in the late 90s, there were a number of players. And I remember when we were looking at an investment in Google and the Yahoo folks response was, you don't really need to do that. We have everything they have. Clearly, that was not the case. And it was because it was simply because people were not privy to exactly what was driving the Google search engine and the power of those sets of algorithms. 20 years later, we have TikTok. So I actually think there's quite an interesting comparison between the two in terms of things that you look at, you would think that all the competitors are the same, but they're clearly not. Um, Melissa raised, you know, talked about uh, what we're looking at for the competitive landscape. You know, Facebook is ferociously trying to ban TikTok. And the reason they're doing that is they have not yet been able to figure out how to compete with them. And so it's interesting. You don't read much about that, but there's a huge lobbying effort and a lot of money being spent by Facebook to try to ban TikTok. And I think it's all, a lot of us being couched under U.S., what's good for the U.S., et cetera. But it's clearly good for Facebook if TikTok is banned in the United States. Um, I don't think Facebook's a huge fan of Microsoft or Twitter buying TikTok especially if the algorithmic uh, capabilities and everything come with it, um, I think that would create a perhaps even more fierce competitor than they would have just with TikTok alone in the US. Um, there's nothing in TikTok's ownership structure to cause pause or concerns. Most of the investors in ByteDance and TikTok to this point are international funds um, with primarily US LPs, Sequoia Capital, Hill House, um, SIG, which is the Susquehanna Group out of Philadelphia, those are the primary in SoftBank. Those are the primary investors. And the vast majority of the cash for those investors has come from US endowments, foundations, and pensions. So when you look at the ownership structure and the cap table for ByteDance, um, and TikTok is simply a subsidiary of ByteDance, you don't really see any Chinese government entities. And that's very similar to when Alibaba in the same stage, Tencent in the same stage, Baidu, they were all funded with overseas money. There was virtually no Chinese money in the cap tables of those companies prior to their public offering. So if you, again, if you look at the standpoint of why are we going after this, there's really not an overriding ownership structure. We'd say this goes back directly to Beijing. Um, Xi Jinping's sister may very well have some shares. She seems to have shares in lots of things, but we'll, we'll set that aside for the day. So what are the reasons for this blockage or this blockage? So, there's much more acceptance today um, on reciprocity. Um, it seems to be the only thing that moves China to respond in a number of areas. Um, the Great Firewall started in the late 90s, became more and more restrictive as time went on. 
and really the large US players in social media search, et cetera, have had no access to the Chinese market. So one could say, well, this is fair. Um, but I think we should be very honest and straightforward about that. Um, and I think for some reason, we seem to be less inclined to simply call that the way it is, as opposed to coming up with lots of other reasons. Because I look at TikTok again, there's no real history of turning data over to the Chinese government. And yes, there have been some um, accommodations perhaps on listing of certain songs, but I think, or listing of certain uh, videos, but I actually believe that, that the real reasons come back down to reciprocity um, and the fact that this is leadership in an area, a technology leadership, it's very important to a large number of US companies, important to the US government, as Melissa mentioned. Um, the target audience group has always been sensitive. So looking back over history of media, people, things that were targeting kids and kids going up, you know, including people up young adults, 15, 16, 18 years old, that has always been an extremely sensitive area. Um, and it's the first time that it's a foreign company that is coming into the US market and actually having that success. Um, you could argue, well, the Sony Walkman, but there was really no social element to that. It was simply a machine to play music. This is something completely different. And I think that the fact that it's coming at this time um, with the US-China relations in more of a fraught position um, certainly plays into that, but they have really cracked the code on some underlying technology and we have to respect and, uh, and accept that. Um, I still come back to the fact this is just the first wave, first of a wave of Chinese firms um, that are not going to be satisfied with leading only in their domestic market. Um, they have huge scale. You know, historically in technology, a U.S. firm had such an advantage because if you were the largest firm in the United States, inevitably when you went overseas, you immediately you went overseas as the largest firm in the world. That is no longer the case, and I think that much as we have the discussion around the U.S. being the world's largest economy, China, quote, overtaking. It's really, a, to me, it's a false comparative. They have four times as many people. You would hope that that economy would be healthy and, and would grow and probably be larger than the U.S. That has nothing to do with being the world's best economy or being the world's best society. But I think this is an example where it's come up very quickly and it's taken a number of people by surprise. And so people are uncomfortable with this. And I think we should become we should become more straightforward and honest about dealing with this. Um, it has not had a huge impact on venture investing in these areas in China. Um, you always look in when you're looking at investing in in uh, venture capital in China. You always look at the choke points in the marketplace: Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, ByteDance, Now, Jingdong. There's a, a number of companies that control a large part of the downstream distribution. So you always have to have a relationship with one of those companies in order for anyone to be large. ByteDance has joined that group uh, more recently. But um, I think that that, you know, frankly, I think it makes people nervous. You see something get that big, that valuable, that fast. And uh, that's some of what's driving, you know, the reaction that we're having. Fascinating. Both of these presentations are absolutely fabulous. I mean, do you think, I mean, Gary, you mentioned the reciprocity. Do you think the policy is right is this the way we should be going? And Melissa too, is, is, this, is this the right policy? Because so, we don't get the China, <laughs> you know, I have been arguing in every speech I've given in China for 
years and years, I've said, allow Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter, unblock US media companies in China. These are not truly national security threats because they're ways to deal with the national security aspect of these companies. And needless to say, um, I have totally failed since none of them are allowed to operate. But is this the right policy then? So I would, I, I think I, I would like to give Melissa's comments on the, on the security side of this in particular. On the economic side, this is where TPP could have been incredibly helpful. A group of 10, 12, 14 democracy, liberal democracies that are basically saying these are the rules. So Melissa brought up the whole point of data, who owns data. Setting standards among that group would absolutely force China to make a very fundamental decision, which is, are we part of the world standards in terms of how we deal with this, or are we not? And I think that by trying to do it just between the US and China, um, it looks much more like a one-on-one -on -one competition, which I think is a terrible mistake in terms of how we should be addressing China and these kind of policy issues. You have to make the problem bigger. And by making the problem, this is what we should do for the global good. The whole idea of data ownership, data management, data distribution, if you could create a forum where that became the fundamental discussion, I think that would be, then, if you, then the reciprocity issue wouldn't be, well, do you want to play in the US? It's like, do you want to be part of this group? Do you want to be part of this standard? That would be, to me, a much more palatable conversation. Mm -hmm. A multilateral approach. Melissa? Yeah, I think it really needs to, the conversation it needs to be about the data, not about the app or the company. Because um, that's what it's really coming down to. It's, a, it's about the data flows. It's about the access to that information and what you can do with it. Um, and, you know, the um, APEC um, cross-border privacy rules are being um, expanded to be more inclusive of the general data protection regulations so that you can and have uh, cross-border commerce and data flows from Europe into Asia. And I agree that, you know, the TPP was definitely a good path to do that. APEC is another, the APEC CB, the cross-border privacy um, data flows is, a, is another way. You have to fold them into the system um, and, and have it much more transparent and open. But, you know, one could argue, and I, and I have publicly that, you know, Facebook doesn't, hasn't had a very good record of protecting our data and um, or following their own policies on privacy or um, and so you could look at the same challenges in the United States of our um, companies have uh, many have had the same concerns of the data sets that they have access to who they're selling it to how they're using it and the algorithms that TikTok and, and um, that TikTok has are exquisite and so this is the beginning of the algorithmic warfare in many ways, I could say, you know, and, and, and the beginning and maybe an, a, a wedge into artificial intelligence and where the next set of companies are going to be maybe targeted because of the algorithms that they have, because of the way that they can actually predict the data usage, data flows, or, and, and, and the like. Facebook, I mean, is, is this, this conversation is not very friendly to Facebook. Do you really think they're behind a lot of this? It, it, you know, especially the TikTok ban as opposed to a merger with Twitter or a sale to Microsoft, it reminds me to some degree of the CNOOC um, attempted acquisition of Unical way back 2005, where 
a, a lot of the political flack thrown at CNOOC was created by another one of the bidders, that there wasn't kind of this, this belief that this was such a danger to US national security. In fact, folks on our board of directors who were former PACOM commanders opined that there was no risk to US uh, national security. Uh, but they were able to gin up enough that the seller became nervous that this deal would ultimately crater. So they chose the lower bidder. Is that what's going on here with Facebook? So it's a fact in terms of Facebook's lobbying efforts to ban TikTok. I think that's, that's, that's really? easily understood. Wow. How, how much of that is being done? How much money they're spending? I would have no idea. But I think we're all a little naive about what actually goes on in the background of things. China's probably the most ferocious market for this. Every company, Qingming's had 30-something companies listed over the last many years. Every single time one of our companies goes to list, there's a letter, anonymous letter that shows up at the China SEC or the US SEC alleging all sorts of terrible things inside the company. And it inevitably comes from an investor or someone else who's related, who is an investor in a related company. So this just seems to be part of the game. If I was at Facebook, I would say, oh yeah, we, oh, these guys are terrible. We should, we should ban them. And, and the reality is if on Facebook, I'm banned in China, I've tried to reach out multiple times to you know, access in different ways the Chinese market. So I would have a, so I would think that's where that reciprocity theme is becoming far more common among companies. Companies never used to like reciprocity. That was always something they would tend to step back from. But you're, gonna, you're seeing more and more of that in the tech sector now. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it is, it's about market access. It's about reciprocity. If you look at how the, um, there's the generation that's really um, is using and adopting TikTok is a generation of people that Facebook doesn't have access to and cannot attract. And so if you start to look at the age groups of everything that you've got this, a viral application with a, um, a, a young population, an emerging kind of group that Facebook doesn't get. And, um, and they have, the company has an, you know, an algorithm that could really bring the power of all the information that Facebook has already collected. So you, you just, they, it, I agree with Gary that, um, that this is sort of the block the access to my market and I'm going to try to create, and I failed twice already, to create a like um, product to TikTok, right? Today that they, they announced real failed again to uh, a, you know, really kind of provide the same type of platform that TikTok did. But again, I think fundamentally, fundamentally Steve, we, we need to take a look at this and understand this is going to happen again and again and again. You know, the Chinese firms, when they come out, the largest hospital chain in the world will be Chinese. Just because the large population, the larger, largest mobile health company in the world will be Chinese. And we're going to see this in a number of different areas. And our, I, would, I would be very disappointed if our collective, if U.S. collective response continued to be point by point singling out companies, as opposed to taking, taking a step back and say, make the problem bigger get a group of countries to agree on standards, get a group of countries to agree on what the rules are for access. And then you go to China and say, do you want to play or not? You, you decide. And it's not like WTO where you get to spend 15 years not following up on your commitments 
It's like, no, you get to, you have to prove that you're doing it before you join. That to me would be a perfectly reasonable approach. Yep. I, and and I, by the way, I'm not going to say which candidate, but one of the candidates is very much talking about a multilateral approach that this unilateral approach, whether it's on listings or whether it's on data or you name it, is counterproductive because it's whack-a-mole. So if you don't allow the Chinese to go there, so then they, they go somewhere else. The listing rules, you know, banning Chinese companies from listing in the United States without getting agreement from Hong Kong, Singapore, Tokyo, and London, hello, doesn't do anything for the United States. It actually hurts. So one last question on, on Facebook, then let me go on to Baidu, Tencent, and the others. Um, have they given up on China? They make a lot of money out of China. The, Chi the Chinese firms spend a fortune with Facebook, advertising on Facebook and other markets. So they actually, they actually have a whole team of people that do nothing but focus on attracting Chinese companies as they are in other overseas markets using Facebook as a platform. So Google, Facebook, um, Twitter, they all have a large number of Chinese advertisers, but all in international markets. I have no idea what they're planning to do domestically in China. Melissa, anything on that? Or? I, I agree. The platform is all about selling ads. Yeah. And when you think about, you know, Facebook is the platform of the Philippines and Facebook is the platform in many other countries that, um, you know, that, that, that's their, that is where they're making their money. Uh, they may not even have to get to the billion extra people in China. So Ali and Baidu and a lot of the other Chinese technology companies have been mentioned. Can you look down the road and think about what the landscape is going to look for those companies in the United States? I mean, Ali, even though it has not succeeded in a major way, still is, is a, a significant player, a material player in the United States. Uh, Baidu has pretty much, so they, they are not, but uh, some of the Chinese companies are, are, have growing market share. So what's the landscape going to look like? I worry that the alley, the cloud pieces, the cloud infrastructure part of clean networks is very alarming um, because I think it signals that we would potentially ban uh, those foreign content delivery platforms or infrastructure platforms from uh, being used by U.S. businesses and, and certainly by the U.S. government. I think, I think long-term that policy along the lines of what Melissa was saying, I think it hurts our competitiveness. I would like to think that if you say within the clean cloud, you have different rules and you can look at IP theft, you can look at counterfeit goods on Alibaba, there's some on Amazon as well. Um, and, but calling out Ali and Tencent specifically, Baidu specifically worries me because I'd like to think that again, companies are gonna come be form all over the world. They're going to be at a scale where we Americans should have the benefit of that. And it shouldn't be based on where they're from. It should be based on their capabilities, the quality of the service. And so we need, we should have the guidelines to say, if you want to play here, this should be the rules. And that should be, again, focused on the requirements as opposed to the companies. And so I'm not, I'm really not comfortable with this whole, the, you know, you use the term whack-a-mole, this whole idea of kind of every time a really successful company comes up, it hurts our innovation because it gives the U.S. firms a false sense of security. They don't need to worry about competing with this other player. I think that's terrible. It's terrible for venture capital. It's terrible, I think, for the overall health of the U.S. market. So I would really hope that's not the path we go down. Yeah, I agree. 
I mean, I, I think we really need to be striving for transparency. Here's what we expect for the market access here. We need to have this transparency on how you're running the company, how you're doing, handling the data, what provide rules of what you can and cannot do with the data um, and you know, bring it under a, a, a very transparent framework. Um, and and that's, how, that's how we expect other businesses to operate. Why not the same in the ICT space? Melissa, you make the, you know, the TikTok um, WeChat kind of executive order. You put it in the context of an entire uh, program. Um, I kind of, I, I wondered when I saw this, you know, there, this was obvious, this was about four weeks after TikTok apparently played a role in uh, kind of vacant ticket requests for the president's rally in Tulsa. So the image of a fairly empty, uh, huge, you know, auditorium uh, apparently was created by folks on TikTok, not by TikTok itself, but by people using TikTok. Was that a factor in this decision? I think it certainly uh, raised uh, the attention of the president when K-pop actually was where it originated. K-pop picked it up, TikTok picked up K-pop. So they kind of amplified each other. It went viral and people were like, buy the ticket and don't show up. Um, so it was a political embarrassment to the president and he does not react well to any political embarrassment. So I think it just raised or accelerated the, the path and, and raised it to his attention that something needed to be done. What is the... A lot of the questions that we've received relate to what is the executive order going to look like, that, or the two executive orders, one relating to TikTok, one relating to, to WeChat. Uh, today's uh, Wall Street Journal had a front page story talking about a Zoom call, I don't know if it was a Zoom call, a call between uh, many US businesses that derive significant revenue from uh, WeChat and that a ban would materially affect, and it was anything from General Motors to the NBA yep. that do a lot of their marketing on that. So I, I, the White House, no matter what they want to accomplish, doesn't want to reduce uh, Americans' ability to sell within China. So what do you think this executive order, what is the ban or what they're calling a ban going to look like in now uh, 30 eight days, 37 days? Well, the, the worst case scenario is, is WeChat gets pulled out of the app stores and you're not able to use it. Um, and that affects me for my relations in China. Uh, that's how I communicate with my colleagues over there. Um, that's how I exchange information. Uh, it affects at least 20 million Americans, maybe more than that, and certainly the Chinese diaspora. It'll, it'll affect their relations because that's how they communicate with their families. So I think that we need to, you need to think about the second and third order effects. Um, in addition to the economic uh, aspects, I think you could also see um, a prevention of U.S. businesses from advertising on the platform. Um, or right now the jurisdiction is really within the US, um, but it does US companies um, on, has, it does have an extraterritoriality. So it's unclear what commerce is going to do. Uh, there is a special clause that is um, important to note that, that you can't prevent 
communications. And so there's a there's a there's a, a nuance within the the emergency powers that you cannot prevent communications and um, and such. So there are many law firms who are saying that if they tried to pull WeChat and as a communications channel, that it would it would be blocked or you know it would go to court and be overturned because of a special clause within the EEPA, the Emergency Powers Act, that actually excludes you cannot block communications. Yeah, but that's why they've done it in terms of financial transactions, that, that the, the order kind of said you can't do financial transactions with Tencent or with ByteDance. Yeah, but we're talking, right, WeChat though in particular was called out in the executive order, which yep. is the communications platform, which they're saying is an untrusted app on the app store that you can, uh, it gains unusual access to your phone book, your geolocation, your communications. So the national security play of banning WeChat is the national security risk of accessing communications of uh, an extraordinary amount of personal data, et cetera, uh, that goes back to mainland China. That, that's the, that is what the executive order is. But if you go back to, again, the original EEPA and the other executive order, the parent, the parents, right, because we're talking about parents and child of the executive orders, that you, this is where um, the linkage could be really, um, uh, it, it, you can't stop the communications platform. So, and that's important, right? So it's a loop, I, I call it a loophole, or it's something that, you know, if you really understood these laws and how they all were created, then you, you have, you're going to have a harder time blocking WeChat than you will TikTok. Yeah. I think that's right. I, I also think, you know, if you just look back, you know, history is very much in favor of decentralization of communications. And I think it's, again, when the government comes in and says, well, we're not going to let you use this tool. Um, I think everyone suffers as a result from that. Um, with WeChat, we use WeChat in our family. We have a lot of friends in China. We have a lot of Americans who use it. We also have a lot of friends in China who or in the U.S. who use WhatsApp because they don't trust the communication on WeChat. So it's a personal choice. And I think that it's a very dangerous path and you start to get down to saying, we're gonna block the use of this tool. All it is is a tool. It happens to be a very, very effective tool. And if they said, if they said you, can, you'll, you can use PayPal, you can't use, okay, so you can't use WePay. That's fine. That's something that if they decided to do that, because there are other ways around that. But I think that for the individual users, we, we should continue to have the ability to use the applications that we choose to use. But isn't WhatsApp blocked in China? You can't use WhatsApp in China. What, WhatsApp is oh. blocked in yeah. China. Yeah. But, the, but again, Steve, that's the reciprocity argument. And so, and so what, I'm saying is, what I'm saying is setting that aside from the this, from this standpoint, again, go back to what's the what are the standards we need to create for how we manage each other's data what are the standards we every countries need to sign up to in terms of you know, not storing data that they should be using, using it for inappropriate purposes? Until we have those standards, that's really the holy grail of what we're talking about and where we need to go. Just blocking the individual companies doesn't really push us in that direction. Yeah. Gary, if you, if you were still, you obviously were a shareholder of ByteDance, I guess indirectly through the acquisition, you got shares. If you, but you're no longer a shareholder. No longer a shareholder. If you still were, would you tell ByteDance to fight this? To just call the bluff 
and see if the administration was willing to, in this political season, uh, institute a ban which affects 100 million Americans who might choose to vote on that ban? Would you, would you kind of roll that dice, especially given if this is a for sale to Microsoft or for a for sale to Twitter? I, you know, back in my private equity days, I love to be a buyer on a for sale because I generally got a lot better pricing. So, first of all, I don't think, so it is a gun to the head of TikTok to decide, do you sell? Do you continue to go? Sympathy for the investors is relatively low because if it was, if the numbers being mooted around 40 or $50 billion, people are going to make out like bandits regardless. And they're still going to remain, have the remaining 75% of their stake in ByteDance and in whatever, 60%, whatever the, whatever the split winds up being. So I think the transaction, if it's a, if it's a 10, if it's a 30, 40, $50 billion transaction, I think the investors come out just fine because they're not being forced to divest their shares in the parent. If they were forcing the investors to divest their shares and starting to force U.S. institutions that were investing in foreign venture capital firms to not invest in those, that's a much, much bigger issue. And no one's, no one's, even, mooted, no one's even thought about having that conversation yet, as far as I can tell. But I would tell them, I would tell them to, because again, you could think about ByteDance could set up a licensing agreement with TikTok to provide algorithms in the future. Microsoft could do a sweetheart deal with them for Azure, Azure hosting in all the markets. You, you could see an economic arrangement where both of these companies would benefit for many years after the transaction, should it occur. Last question, then I want to go to what we now have. We got over 40 questions, so I will go to the questions, I promise. But why is the argument, you, you, Gary, you made reference to the fact that the owners of, of these companies are, are basically American pension funds. So when we have a for sale, and obviously, you know, if you, you get a grand slam home run, there are a lot of investments where you, you struck out. And that's part of, as you know, venture capital investing. Your, your home runs make up for the ones that you didn't do so well on. Why is so little made of the fact that when we have these policies, we're punishing teachers and firemen and policemen and, and, and everybody else because their pension funds are worth less? Why does nobody really say that? I think it's because you don't really know what the transaction is. And it's not like you have a deal where the US government's saying, we're gonna enforce a $10 billion sale as opposed to a $50 billion sale. I think if you could put real numbers on what the transaction looked like, you might be able to put together a case to say, you're costing the investors, the endowments, foundations, and pensions, you're costing them this kind of money. Right now, we don't have any idea in terms of what that looks like. So it's very hard without having hard numbers to say, what is the disadvantage to the investor base on something like this? I remember on the, on the Unical deal, there was an absolute, um, we knew what the two bids were and the largest owners of Unical at that point were CalPERS and CalSTRS. So you knew what the impact on each of CalPERS and CalSTRS was based on the lower price. It was, it was but nobody seemed to have no effect whatsoever. Um, Sean Doherty asks, I have an ed tech company and was intending on selling products on WeChat and doing customer engagement on TikTok. Are we just not going to be allowed to use these platforms in the U.S.? 
and not be able to sell on these platforms? How is it going to affect the ability of U.S. companies to sell in the Chinese market at all? My perspective is, is that we don't know the answer to the question yet. The Secretary of Commerce is going to, has until September 20th to make a decision about what path they intend to take. And um, so I would argue that you need to, um, uh, I would write the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and get them engaged, but uh, I would wait before you make your decisions of what needs to happen. If, if you were to read the tea leaves, though, the, the tea leaves would suggest that you're not going to be able to use the platform unless the platform, one, is bought by Microsoft or a U.S. company um, or uh, and the like. So. I would, I would make the assumption the platforms are going to continue to exist. I, I don't think TikTok's going away, and I don't think uh, WeChat's going away. Dan Krasenstein asks, are VPNs going to play a role in all this going forward? Will you have to kind of do the opposite of what we do when we're in China, where we use a VPN to get beyond the Great Firewall, using a VPN in the United States to access these platforms? I, I don't know, um, because the it all depends on how the Secretary of Commerce deems the application, because if the application gets put on a list like the Treasury sanctions list, the carriers won't allow for the connection to happen. They won't. They would have to block the VPN. Because mm -hmm. it, yeah, it will just be. Uh... It'd be on the entities list, so yeah. it would be illegal for them to allow for the connection. Yeah. So many questions reading through that. Um, will China retaliate? Sure. And if so, if so, what will be that retaliation? Well, I've seen it. I've seen it discussed. Well, they'll ban Microsoft in China. Yeah, that would that be difficult. That would, that, would, that would be difficult given the pervasiveness of the Microsoft software and tools that are that are in China, as well as I, I think on this, the Chinese response has actually been relatively relatively quiet on this. You have the usual. CGTN articles, you have the usual Global Times articles, but I haven't, I haven't seen anything specifically suggested. And usually by this point, the Chinese would have come up with something, well, if you do this, we're going to go ahead and do this. And I just haven't seen anything like that um, coming up yet. It certainly doesn't help the overall US-China relations. And, um, and I think it creates, again, it creates this, this feeling that it's us versus them, US versus China. And I think that that's really, if you look at policy going forward, what we need to do is step away from that and create a different construct for that discussion. And that's certainly not gonna happen in the next 38 days, so. I agree with that. I don't think it's gonna happen between now and the election. So, so I would expand it from 38 days to when the Secretary of Commerce is gonna come out to November 4th. This is somebody called Professor Jean. There's a litany of concern about China's ability to monitor U.S. communications relative to security concern. Does the United States have similar ability to do the same in China? I.e., Cisco has, I don't know if this is true, a 70% share of the Chinese internet infrastructure market. Right, Gary, you may, I don't know, either of you. So Cisco, I don't think their share is 70% anymore. Um, you know, Huawei and ZTE are, are much larger players, I think, than Cisco in China now. But the broader point is the U.S. has, the US has uh, 
taken advantage of its uh, the NSA capabilities globally for a long time. Um, I don't. This is why. Again, I think it's so much about with Huawei, so much about with you know Cisco, et cetera. So much of it is about how you manage your network. It's not just having the equipment installed. It's really about the administration of the services that that network is providing. And there's also the sense of, is it more important at the edge, the discussion with the UK and the US about Huawei at the edge as opposed to the core. So could the US be spying? Technically, probably. Is it likely? No. Um, and uh, But would they have that capability? Could could you make that case? Cisco is a pretty sophisticated company. The NSA is a pretty sophisticated organization. I have no direct knowledge one way or the other, but if you look at the history of the NSA, they've been pretty good about collecting data on people all over the world. Now, Melissa, what do you think? Uh, I think they're the intelligence collection apparatus of uh, our respective countries is strong. And I think the, I think the broader difference, at least from the United States perspective, is, is that Chinese law compels Chinese companies and organizations to participate on, on behalf of the collection when directed. And that's part of the fear in the United States is, is that there are five laws that basically compel people, organizations, you know, companies to do what they are told to do or there'll be dire consequences. And that's, I think, so that's an all of nation surveillance apparatus, which is not the same in the US. But e either, could, either country has the capability to do it. And either country, I guess in the US, you would need a warrant to kind of compel the transfer of data from outside the United States, but you could get that warrant from a FISA court likely. Yeah, it, there's a whole process by which you get data, you, you have to go about either a warrant, a national security letter uh, through the FISA court, et cetera, in order to get that data. Apple would be a really good example of how they have um, you know, blocked the ability of the US government trying to gain access to the data that they have stored. So, and, uh, and Microsoft and many other companies have, uh, you know, the, the Microsoft cloud case of Ireland, there's many cases where, the United, where our companies will actually fight the United States government to protect their customers' data and maintain and ensure that it's not within the arm's reach of the U.S. government. There is, in discussions I've had both with the NSC and state, there is an assumption that a Chinese company would not resist uh, that request. I actually don't agree with that. I think the idea there would be the way I, the Chinese system, there would be discussions between the, the, you know, the uh, Ministry of State Security and the company about how to do this, because for the company in terms of their business overseas, whether it's Ali or whether it's anybody else, it's existential. Because once they right. took that data and they transferred it back to China, their existence outside of China is over. So they would argue you know, you guys want this, but it's going to end up costing us X tens of billions of dollars because our market is going to close. And the idea that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't care about that is wrong. So the whole analysis by our government that this just would happen arbitrarily and capriciously is wrong. It's not how the Chinese government, it's not how the Chinese system works, but we have, you know, there, there's not tons of folks in our government who kind of have experienced China 
uh, firsthand. Um, I think the, the key word you used was capricious. So does it happen in some focused ways? I'm sure. But in the hundreds of companies we invest in in China, you talk to those entrepreneurs, they take the approach that most of the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs do, which is not really to get too close to the government. You know, their, their goal is not to be in the government's pocket. And so will it occasionally happen in certain areas? Sure, but it happens in the U on the US side as well. Um, in China, as Melissa was saying, there's just the reach is longer and far more coercive in terms of what they can, you know, what they probably have and will uh, specifically request. But I don't know too many entrepreneurs, unless you're in the military industrial complex, who wake up really excited about involving the government in their business, whether it's China or the U.S. Definitely. Here's a question from Gary Wong. Um, I have no idea what the answer is. Does the scope of the executive order include potentially forcing U.S. semiconductor sales to Chinese server OEMs that supply Alibaba or Tencent to stop? Well, um, not yet, but uh, there is uh, the expansion of the export controls to block the sale of semiconductors made with U.S. technologies um, abroad was used and is being used to, I would say, quote unquote, choke the supply to Huawei. So if you look at the provenance of the things that we are doing, it, it is, it's, it's possible. Um, I, I, I haven't heard it discussed in this context, but when you think of clean network initiative and the different things that, that's around 5G and what we've done with Huawei, what we've done with ZTE, what we've done with the NTT list, we, the US government, you know, the clean network initiative that the, it's certainly within, you could, uh, you could imagine that it would be in scope, yes. Question from Jennifer C, this probably, well, either of you. Although I have all, I've heard often that there's no record of TikTok bike dance turning over data to the Chinese government, is that verifiable? Or is it so much of a black box that we really wouldn't know? It, there, is, there is a lack of transparency of when a um, entity might be served or asked to hand over data in China. Um, or to the Chinese authorities. It would have to flow down from ByteDance to TikTok um, and then back and then flow back up. So there is no, um, there, there is no transparency on whether it has, has happened. Although the TikTok executives have all said that it has not happened and you have to believe them, especially the, all of the new executives that have been brought in are people who are very well respected from US industries. Um, there is a TikTok is doing transparency reports on the safety of its platform, the data protection mechanisms, um, similar to other social media platforms where they have a monthly um, or maybe even more often submission. And they've agreed to have extreme transparency in Europe um, as part of the uh, European initiatives that are happening. So uh, I, I, we just don't have transparency in what happens in China. The, uh, this is this is a good this is a good one. You know, as people who were on at the very beginning of the call, we were waiting for people to get on. We heard Gary shot a rattlesnake. So this question is from Tom, and he says, "What led up to the shooting of the rattlesnake, and was this in any way a metaphor to the U.S.-China relationship today?" 
the, ch the changes. No, put rattlesnakes, are, rattlesnakes are really bad if you're out fishing or you have a, someone has a horse on your property. So we don't like rattlesnakes. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if we like the state of the U.S.-China relationship. Either, so I guess that was the other. But these changes being put in place today by the Trump administration, can and will they be in, unwound if there is a change of administration? Uh, executive orders um, could be superseded by another executive order that changes or softens the policy. The, the, the thing that's important to watch is which of the agencies uh, um, are given the authority to take action. So for these executive orders, really the power um, and the authority exists in the Department of Commerce. Um, for other sanctions, the power and authority lives with Secretary of Treasury. Uh, and that's certainly who chairs the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States. So it's really important to track where these um, where the authority exists of what agency it is and then who's going to be the political appointee and what is their position as they come in if there is a change of administrations very important this is going to be personality based i think that i think that that's exactly right and the only thing i would add is the rhetoric is going to get worse between now and november there is no benefit for biden harris to come out and be seen as being friendly to china or accommodating to China over the course of the next two to three months. There's just no benefit in that. And so what I can say is that there's a great deal of, there's a number of groups talking about US-China technology policy, um, US-China trade policy, and inevitably the underlying themes are, should we have something that's more multilateral? Should we have something that pulls back and tries to look at what, the, what issue you're trying to solve as opposed to individual companies? So my assumption would be, the Biden administration would be more inclined to look at things that way, but you're not going to hear that. I don't think you're going to hear that in the red political rhetoric or anything close to that the next uh, three months. I think the Chinese, yeah, I think Gary, you said that the, the response has been rather um, well calibrated, that they have not overreacted to much, much of it with the exception of Hong Kong, where it seems they're going they're full tilt. Uh, but I think there's a belief that whether President Trump is reelected or whether Biden is elected, there will be a more rational uh, U.S. China policy, uh, China policy in the United States after the election. So they're prepared to kind of wait to see, you know, President Trump could overrule some of these things or uh, clearly a President Biden will have a more multilateral approach than what we're seeing today from the, um, you know, the, the Trump administration. Uh, from Gustav M. Can we expect a rise in pressure on Europe to ditch China's tech solutions? The, uh, the British announced the D plus 10 initiative that was specific to Huawei. Um, so it's the G7 plus three, which the three is India, Australia, and South Korea, where the, the democracies, these 10 democracies would work together toward um, a, a more holistic 5G um, strategy, uh, pursuing the open uh, radio access network standards and working together on 6G standards and technology development. So that was announced by the UK and has been endorsed by all of those 10 democracies. And I, I expect that to be swept into a broader context um, 
So uh, uh, I, you, could, you could potentially see, because that is about 5G, uh, so when you look at the five areas of the clean network initiative, you could imagine the D10 championing the, the clean network initiative broadly. Uh, from Dan Rosen. So going with TPP, that is reciprocity just with a bigger catchment area. I think that's, you could argue that's the case. No, that's, no, I don't think that's really where, where this goes. The reciprocity, again, you, have, you are a very specific response. If you don't let us this, we can do that. What I think both Melissa and I were fans of is the idea of, of a group of companies saying, this is the way that we want data treated and handled. This is the security aspects of that. And then you choose whether you join or not. There's no penalty to a particular company. You just don't get the, fun, you just don't get the benefits of being part of the group. So I suppose in some extension <clears throat> of how you think about reciprocity, you could, you could consider it that way. But I view it much more as really establishing global standards, much as IEEE has done for years. There's so many examples where you've had the entire world, if you're gonna manufacture a particular product, you're gonna do a, provide a particular service, you have to agree to abide by certain rules. So it's really creating more of a, more of a broader rules-based system that people opt in or out of. Yeah, it, it, then it's about the data. It's about data and the data flows and transparency about that of, you know, who owns it? How is it collected? How is it used? How is it repurposed? Who monetizes it? I mean, even the OECD digital tax is all about data flows and infrastructure, who pays for the infrastructure upon which the data flows of over the top services. So when you start to look at a lot of the things that are going on, even between the United States and Europe or within OECD or you know, Asia, Europe, us, that it's, we're going to have to get to a roadmap of how we're going to get that, to agree upon the data, the data flows and um, cross-border data transfers, et cetera, and the transparency and the data protection and the rules by which we're all gonna agree it's gonna happen. Europe's problem is they're gonna have to figure out how to get some dogs in this hunt. Right now, there's really no European company that's participating in if you look at the 20 largest tech companies on the planet, there's really no one on the European side that's stepping up as being something that would be taken seriously as a leader in those areas. That's a different, that's an entirely different issue, I think. Though you might argue that some of the rules that the Europeans have put in place stifle innovation, stifle the creation of uh, big tech companies. Well, perhaps. I, I just think that means that they have a very vested interest in making sure that the rules are, are very, very uh, uh, accommodating for new entrants. And I think it also means that they're likely to be much more focused on the social side of the issues than they are on the pure economic side. Chris Merck asks, um, is it fair that your view is that the stated rationale for these actions, that this is a national security imperative is false? Um, I, I, if that was directed at me, I... Uh, uh, both. Yeah, um, is it a national security issue? Uh, we are currently defining national security issues in the US very broadly. I could argue that so is China. Um, and so, and, um, <coughs> sorry, I do have two dogs. So there's a lot of questions and I have a, have a golden <laughs> retriever and I have an Australian shepherd mix and she's very unhappy right now. Um, at any rate, it's national security is being defined very broadly. So what is the national security issue with WeChat? 
WeChat is about communications, it's about tracking people, it's about um, the geolocation, it's about access to a lot of data. And the same thing for um, TikTok, but differently. It's more of um, gaining access to all of those videos, to profiling 100 million Americans, and, um, and then maybe using that data of, uh, to really enhance the algorithms that are already exquisite in that platform. So it's a learning kind of thing. And that's maybe more of a tech fear than um, a technology fear and a future fear than it is um, more broadly a current uh, issue. Are they national security? When we define things very broadly and as national security issues as the current government has in the Department of Justice, they have, they have categorized these as national security issues. And again, I would say that China has also a very broad definition and sometimes not transparent definition of what national security is, uh, as I have experienced. Yeah. Sorry for my dogs. <laughs> Someone said, please introduce the dog. And the, Kenny Lin asked that in, the, in his question. The, uh, well, you know, our digital economy dialogue, of course, calls in its consensus for a narrowing and a, of the definition of national security, that we actually agree with the Chinese on what truly is national security and don't go down this path of just having an ever-widening definition, which brings so many companies um, into it. Um, C.T. Jensen asked, are there, are there, besides Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, do you think there are other, and we've mentioned China Telecom, China Unicom, are there other Chinese companies that you think are targets? Go ahead, Melissa. Yeah, I think that, I, I don't know what other company, I, I think that any company that is China headquartered um, and that is, uh, shows um, uh, promise or issues is definitely going to be on a list. If you look at the entity list, there were, um, I think 10, 10 or 12 companies that were added in the uh, first week of July to the entity list for export controls. And I know that from the, the current or the amended version of CFIUS called FIRMA, um, Foreign Investment um, Restrictions in the United States, there are an awful lot of AI companies that have been put on that list um, and restrictions in that area. Mm -hmm. Over to you, Gary. So I think that it, it requires something to get to a certain scale in order to get, I think, get that kind of notice. And so DJI, if you wanted to pick on, a, you know, again, the world's largest drone company, huge market share, very successful. Um, I've seen them mentioned in some of those, you know, some of those conversations. Um, but I, I think that, again, the big hope is that we're going to move away from company by company specific designations into something that's a little more broader and thoughtful. But we'll have to see. One, one, I want to read one comment and then ask one final question because uh, we're out of time. Uh, and this is interesting. Uh, Anna Ashton, uh, who's at the US-China Business Council, uh, writes, commerce is reportedly not going to issue draft implementing regulations for comment. And when reaching out to commerce to discuss the executive orders, wow, career officials have conveyed they are banned from discussing it and all communications and queries must go to the office of the Deputy Secretary of Commerce. How unusual is this when agencies are tasked with implementing executive orders? I mean, Melissa, you were in the heart of that bureaucracy. You, 
probably have a view on that. Well, again, I would point you back to the original executive order on supply ICT and supply chain, because that's where it goes to. And there is a clause in that that says, well, that did go out for public comment and um, in December with comments due back in January before the rule went. Um, but in that executive order, it says that the Department of Commerce can do a no notice, basically decision um, for national security reasons and without any comment, et cetera. So again, the, the two orders that came out last week really point back to the original order of May 2019. And if there are any future orders that are coming out in the future, you know, and uh, however, I would always go back to the, to, the, to the parent executive order that it's deriving the authorities from. <laughs> Last question, because we're out of time, though this, I could go on for hours, but I find these issues simply mesmerizing. Where does this leave US-China relations? What does this mean? You know, we've had so much talk about decoupling, and this is actually a major league step towards decoupling. So each of you, if you can kind of do it in 60 seconds, that would be great. Gary? So is this a major step forward of decoupling? I actually don't think so. I think that the when you look at, if you were to say, um, you're simply not going to, you're not going to allow trade or you're going to force, there's a lot of discussion now, you're going to force a Chinese internet versus an English language internet. Um, I really see those as false choices. I think we're just at one of those moments where for the first time you're starting to see apps technologies come from overseas that are at a certain scale that the existing large providers in the U.S. look at, whether it's a government saying this is a security threat, whether it's a company saying this is a business threat. And I think that we're starting, we're dealing with some of this for the first time. So I expect a certain amount of awkwardness and a certain amount of uh, tit for tat, I guess, response on that. Um, I am one of the folks who would say there's simply no way to decouple at least in technology, there's really no way to distinguish Chinese AI from US AI, the underlying technologies, autonomous vehicles, et cetera. What you can do is you can restrict going back to, it's all about the data. It's all about the access to data, management of data, and what you use the data for. That's where the real discussions need to be. The rest of it, I think, is a lot of noise at this point. Melissa? Um, well, I guess, I do see this as part of the journey of the decoupling um, that started years ago um, and has really kind of accelerated, has definitely accelerated with uh, this administration. I agree with Gary in principle that this is going to be about the data and, and the data governance mechanisms that we set up, but I, I believe that right now um, the decoupling is being accelerated based on market access and what what the United States sees as unfair trade practices, unfair mechanisms. And to the extent that the decoupling is happening, it's happening to force a hand, whether or not that's going to be successful is, is to be determined. Um, but, but, the, but the system is changing and, um, and, uh, and I think, I think that we'll have more companies, um, at least in the next 70 some odd days, are going to be affected. Gary, Melissa, I can't thank you enough for giving so generously of your time and really creating what I think is a fabulously fascinating, informative program. This has been really, really terrific. 
we've run over. I noticed because I see participant totals that virtually nobody signed off in the course of this 75 now, 82 minutes. Um, but it really was, was just great. I can't thank you enough for participating and I can't thank you enough for your continuing support of the National Committee. And thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.